take thou authority to preach the gospel. Indeed, I look upon all the world as my parish. And welcome to our latest episode of Field Preachers. I'm your host, Rachel Gilmore, here with an incredible leader in multi-ethnic ministry throughout our nation, um, the amazing Mark DeMoss. So thank you so much for your time. I'm so glad you're here. Yeah, Rachel, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I, I, I met you or heard of you and saw you on the stage at the Mosaics Conference and then was honored to have you as a part of our digital church planting training. But some of our listeners... I may not have heard of you. They might be living in caves. Who knows what? But um, tell me a little bit about your story and your deep passion and desire to start multi-ethnic faith communities. Yeah, well, again, I appreciate being with you. And we've had actually a pretty good response from that first podcast we did with Path One. I've been talking to people even to this day since then. So I appreciate that. Um, obviously, it's about advancing the kingdom of God and ministry. And I really like how Path One is pursuing partnerships with people in this season and in this time to advance that mission through their local churches and ultimately, again, for the sake of the gospel. Uh, you know, uh, my story, raised Jesuit Catholic, saved in, as a college baseball player at 19, 20 years old, uh, too slow to get drafted when I graduated, uh, stumbled into ministry, so to speak, when the church that I'd become a Christian at asked me to be their high school pastor. I had no idea what that meant. Uh, but it turned out I was uh, pretty good at it, right? And so after about a year and a half, the pastor said, hey, the kids seem to like you. You seem to like this. Uh, if you want to keep doing it, you can't keep sharing your testimony every Sunday. I had nothing else. <laughs> I was a psych major. And uh, I said, well, what do you do? He said, you go to seminary. And I immediately pictured Gregorian chants and robes. And he said, no, no, it's not <laughs> like that at all. So off I went to Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon in 1985, met and married my wife, Linda, uh, a couple of years later, all to say that that began in the in January of 1984, right out of college, a 10-year ministry career uh, into 1993 when I was brought here to Little Rock, Arkansas by a mega church. At the time, 2,000 people over the next eight years, it would grow to 5,000. Uh, the youth group of 7th through 12th graders I started with, 150, grew to 600 in that time. I went from one secretary to nine full-time staff just for 7th through 12th graders, built a $3.5 million student center uh, that we paid cash for. I was living the dream, Rachel. And one day I looked around this otherwise amazing church and realized the only people of color were janitors. And wow. that began to bother me, uh, 1997, 1998. And so essentially I uh, opened the word of God for myself throughout my seminary notes. I had a master's in exegetical theology at the time, now a doctor of ministry in that field. And essentially, I began to study the New Testament, the nature of the local church in the New Testament, came to recognize that every church in the New Testament outside of Jerusalem was what we would call today a healthy, multi-ethnic and economically diverse church, men and women, Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, walking, working, worshiping God together as one. And it was this credible demonstration, not just the proclamation, but the demonstration of the power of Christ to be lifted up to draw all people into himself, that salvation wasn't just for the Jews, that the local church was not just for the Jews, that coming kingdom of God was not just for the Jews, but for all people, not just some people. And so in 2001, uh, I remained here in Little Rock, but it went to the urban center, 30% poverty, 66% of kids without dads in the home, highest violent crime rate in the city at the time. And uh, with what Christianity Day would call three years later, a big dream in Little Rock. And that was this dream, this idea in 2001 could men and women of diverse ethnic and economic background will themselves 
to walk, work, and worship God together as one in a local church, again, to advance a credible gospel of God's love for all people, not just some. And I can't even believe it, Rachel, but we're coming up on 20 years now, uh, continuing to pursue this path and this work here in the city of Little Rock. That's amazing. Like, praise God. And something I love about your story that deeply impacted me um, was that what, because you had this vision, this God-ordained, like theologically grounded vision of a multi-ethnic um, socioeconomic community, you intentionally started off that way. I think a lot of church plants in Methodism fail at this because they start with an all Anglo dominant culture staff, and then they wonder why they can't be more diverse. Can you speak to that briefly about why that was important for you to start off that way? Yeah, absolutely. It's really a great question. Um, somehow in those days, I realized that this couldn't be me, uh, the white guy. And by the way, my, my grandfather emigrated from Sicily, my grandmother from Russia. She was Russian Jew. Uh, so, and I'm white. Uh, my mother was white. I identify with white. But having said that, uh, somehow in those days, I realized that this couldn't be just the white guy starting a church and then say, hey, all you people of color, come help me fulfill my vision, right? I realized <laughs> that this had to be our vision, not just my vision. This had to be our work, just my work. So even in the nine months leading up to the official launch of our church, uh, the, the primary thing I worked at was building a diverse team of people and not just uh, people around me who were diverse, who we could say, we are doing this together, not Mark is doing this. Uh, but we made sure that at least three different ethnicities were receiving a paycheck on day one when we launched the church. We felt it was important to put our money where our mouth was. And so in our case, that was black, uh, Hispanic, and white. On the day we opened, we're receiving uh, paychecks from the church. And that was a statement uh, of equity, a statement of the vision of the future, that we would share responsibility for this, this work. This would be our work, not just, uh, so to speak. Uh, but yeah, to empower diverse leaders is one of the seven core commitments of building a healthy media in the church, and you just can't have it any other way. By the way, when people are trying to transition or move towards this with an established church, uh, they often think, hey, I'm going to get an, let me get a black guy to join our, our team, right? You know, and, and uh, as, as if just, you know, that, that's going to magically, you know, solve things. Of course, we want to empower diverse leaders, but it's not just getting people on your staff. It's the positions and the responsible authority that they occupy, almost not just a quantity issue, but a quality issue. So the first page on a website that people go today is to your staff page. They're going to look at your staff page. They're going to want to see the diversity of the community as we as Christians, of course, the diversity of the kingdom of God. And they're not only going to look at the faces, uh, but they're going to look at the positions they hold. Uh, you know, it's one thing, as I said, I was in this amazing church, lots of people on color, except they were all janitors, right? Mm. Uh, uh, an African-American pastor told me in the early days of my church, he said, now, Mark, be careful. Uh, you might staff a worship pastor who's African-American, but you could, if that was it, you could subtly be saying to the black community, you're good enough to entertain us. He said, if mm. you only staff in the children's ministry, you're good enough to nanny our kids. These were the words of the largest wow. African-American church and pastor in the state of Arkansas. Uh, and so he said, so it was all about equity. So from the beginning, we shared the pulpit. Today we have five teaching pastors, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, woman, uh, our elder board, completely diverse. So again, structural diversity, our team, uh, the responsible authority that we share together for the church is super important to building a healthy multi-ethnic church. Wow, I love that. And it kind of pains me that we haven't been focused on this more uh, over the last few decades like you were. But in light of George Floyd and just the polarization in America, 
the concept of embracing and intentionally seeking multi-ethnic churches is like the only way forward for us. I mean, we can't ignore it anymore. Yeah, you know, there is absolutely, and I literally have been saying this, Rachel, for 20 years, that while government and education certainly has a role to play in dismantling systemic segregation and ultimately racism, whether implicit, explicit in society, um, ultimately, you can't legislate racism out of the human heart. You can't educate it out of the human heart because, again, it is a heart issue, and that's the work of the spiritual institutions of our society. If I'm speaking to a broad audience, of course, uh, the mosques, the synagogues, and the church. But, of course, we as Christ-centered and Christ followers, uh, both individuals and churches, we recognize if we can't, in our own churches, if we can't dismantle systemic segregation uh, and or racism, how in the world do we think that we can impact an increasingly diverse, polarized, and cynical society? So we've got to do the work ourselves and let that then blossom out to impact the community. Absolutely. And one of the many things I respect about you is you were growing and experiencing this thriving multi-ethnic uh, and diverse congregation, and yet you didn't hold on to this growth and the lessons for yourself. You realized this could be a tool or a resource to empower and equip the broader kingdom of God. So tell me a little bit about the shift from the Mosaics Church to the network and the different areas where you offer coaching or resources or guidance for those wanting to embrace uh, a similar approach to church planting. Yeah, you know, when we started the church in 2001 it was such a lonely road. There were so few people thinking about this type of church or actually moving towards implementation that every now and then I would run across somebody and they'd say, hey, I think there's a pastor in Cincinnati trying to do that. And it was like water dry desert. So I would track down that pastor just so that we could commiserate, so we could share stories. And he, he's, I remember one guy's like, I'm not crazy after all. There's somebody else thinking <laughs> like me. And so all of that was going on in those first few years. Then Dr. George Yancey, who's today at Baylor, African-American sociologist, co-author of the book United by Faith, right when that book was coming out, he and I met, uh, and we determined that there, there needed to be a grassroots movement, that this thing wasn't big enough to be natural. There were so few people thinking about it, and of course, it flew in the face of, uh, at that time, 30 or 40 years of the homogeneous unit principle misappropriated to plant, grow, and develop churches uh, that we basically started a network with a small gathering of people in Dallas, Texas in, the no in November of 2004, just almost like a switchboard where if you were if somehow, if you were connected to me or George and we heard about you, we brought you together and that led to retreats and, and on and on. Eventually in 2005 and six, Mosaics uh, created a website, uh, nonprofit, et cetera, to advance this mission and really, again, to provide a, a, a switchboard where as this movement began to blossom. And again, it was so early stages all through the first decade of the 21st century. Uh, but nevertheless, whoever you were, finding your way to us, us finding your way to you, and then connecting in a relational way to share peer learning, a mutual encouragement. Uh, and all of this, again, developed in 2004 and five when we launched Mosaics. As far as like my passion to uh, you know help others, uh, simultaneously myself to others uh, who were thinking like this, learn from them, encourage one another, uh, I was asked in 2004, just three years in, by a major publisher that they said, you have to write a book on this. I literally said to them, I don't even know what the questions are still. Uh, so I was only three years in, wow. and that was my response. And I turned down this opportunity to write because I said, I don't even know what the questions are. Uh, but then several years later, uh, a publishing came around again and said, man, we really need for you to share some things on this. And so uh, in 2007, then I published my 
first book with uh, Josie Bass Leadership Network, Building a Healthy Multi-Ethnic Church, which essentially laid the theological groundwork. Christ envisioned the multi-ethnic church on the night before he died. Luke described it in an action at a place called Antioch, the model church of the New Testament, contrary to popular opinion, is not Jerusalem, it's Antioch. Uh, it's everything you want to be, right? Mega missional, multi-site, and multi-ethnic. And then, of course, Paul prescribes uh, this vision throughout his life and writings. And so laying that theological foundation and then providing seven core commitments that our network at that point, the handful of us that were getting together in retreats, we essentially worked hard to determine what must be in a healthy multi seven core commitments. And I had the privilege of writing about that in 2007. Wow, that's incredible. And so that's grown into kind of like this four-tiered almost, uh, or there are four main options of resourcing that, that's offered through Mosaics, right? You have one that's on health or multi-ethnic churches, CQ, community transformation, church economics. That's another area where I feel like you're a leader when it comes to entrepreneurial church planting. Uh, can you say a little bit more about, you know, if folks are wanting to dive in, learn more, uh, where do they begin or what's offered in each of those areas? Yeah, you're absolutely right. So Mosaics began to grow. And by 2010, we put on the first national multi-ethnic church conference. Uh, people said, if you have 200, it'll be a lot. We had 400 as it was in that day. That led to a rhythm of every three years putting on conferences. Our last one, November 2019 in Dallas with uh, 1,300 people, 112 speakers, etc. So conferencing, again, was able to aggregate these people, but then coming out of the conferencing, meeting so many people that needed help. They needed to work smart, not hard. They needed to avoid mistakes. Uh, that we had made and learned from over time. And so that's when we began uh, uh, to really aggregate resourcing through coaching, for instance, uh, offering uh, coaching to, to, uh, to churches and to pastors. And, and again, conferencing, we worked on a curriculum that came out in 2016. So all that's to say this, that where Mosaic sits today, and of course, this last year, 2020, has essentially scaled our work uh, big time because uh, you know, there's three major issues that American society, really the globe is facing, but particularly in America, you think about the pandemic, you think about the economic collapse uh, related to that pandemic and uh, job loss, et cetera. And then of course, all, all things color, class, and cultural racial tensions in our society. Well, Mosaics through the years has developed an expertise in two of those three areas, right? Uh, uh, the racial tensions, how to navigate that, how to be a leader in your church, pitch it towards diversity, uh, as well as the future funding of the church, the economics, getting beyond tithes and offerings to create multiple income streams in order not only to bless the community, but to sustain your mission long term. So you mentioned the four areas of Mosaic. We're actually adding a fifth even as we speak. But the areas, one is we still do coaching. We have about, I don't know, six Methodist cohorts around the country currently, the Missouri Conference, North Georgia, Western North Carolina. Uh, we've done Ohio. We've done Pennsylvania. So we were a lot in cohort learning with the Methodist Church around the country. Uh, and, and again, through coaching, cohorts, through curriculum, our curriculum, multi-ethnic conversation, still conference, things that we do to help people create healthy, multi-ethnic, and economically diverse churches. Uh, so that's a go-to spot. Secondly, uh, January 1st of 2020, we signed a contract with Dave Livermore and the Cultural Intelligence Center in Grand Rapids, Michigan to become their preferred provider of CQ assessment and training for faith-based organizations throughout North America. So that's opened up an entire new area of, of mission advance, if you will. So what we do in that regard is we assess through a 15 to 20 minute self-scoring assessment, 
We assess all the leadership of a church. That gives us a report, if you will, like an MRI on the current cultural intelligence of that church, that organization. And then we do six-hour training rooted in that empirical data and then come back and write prescriptions, a 12 to 18-month course, if you will, based on the findings of that specific church, how it can grow in its cross-cultural engagement and competence over the next 12 to 18 months. So we're doing all of this work in the area of CQ and our good friend Stephanie Hand, of course, in the Western North Carolina uh, conference is one of our trainers and, and providing that to churches, not just Methodist, but across the board in America. So all the multi-ethnic uh, work, the cultural intelligence, of course, Rachel, it's all integrated. So, but to try to say, here's these products, you have multi-ethnic church, you have CQ. And then the third one, uh, another one you mentioned is community transformation. That's where we do a lot of coaching and work with churches to get them to move from a one-dimensional game to a three-dimensional game. So you have your church, but establishing a second nonprofit, an umbrella nonprofit by which you can aggregate your uh, all your social justice, your compassion and mercy work in the community. It's important to pull that away from church budget these days and get that under a second nonprofit budget. Why? Because that's how you can aggregate local, state, and federal grants, other churches getting involved, sending resources in terms of money and people. It's a smart structural shift. And so we work uh, with churches to establish that second nonprofit to do the training, the teaching, uh, to understand what that involves. And then, of course, to aggregate a second income stream beyond tithes and offerings in the church to grants and donations through that nonprofit in ways that you're focused on a, a holistic uh, needs of a specific community, the old parish model. Uh, because so long, people in the community, they see us sending our people and our resources across the ocean, but they say, I've never seen these people across the street. So we've mm -hmm. got to beef up our social engagement leg uh, and community uh, transformation. And that's what we work on in terms of forming nonprofits, uh, side, uh, two sisters in the same house, if you will, with the church and a second nonprofit. In our case, we have Mosaic Church and we have Vine and Village, a, uh, a nonprofit with about 11 programs in it. You don't start 11 nonprofits, you start one nonprofit with multiple programs. It's a smart and efficient way to work, again, to engage the community. And lastly, and more uh, recently in the last year and a half, uh, since the publication of our first in space book, The Coming Revolution in Church Economics, Why Tithes and Offerings Are No Longer Enough and What You Can Do About It. Again, economic coaching. This is the third leg of the stool. I liken the future of the church to an American football team. Uh, prior to this, we have one team. We, we have our, our church, but we have an offense, if you will. We do all things spiritual, but we're not engaged as we should be locally in a synergistic way. And then we have to learn to make money. So think about it. The church, the nonprofit, Profit and for-profit business enterprise is the third leg because that's like a football team. The win game, you've got to play in three dimensions, not just one. So getting the church to pitch the church to, towards multi-ethnicity for the sake of a credible gospel, building out that nonprofit, but then that third leg, for-profit business enterprise. Church economics is all about how do we leverage the assets of a church, which is people, money, and facilities to bless the community, to advance the common good in our mission, yes, but at the same time, generate some measure of ROI, some measure of sustainable income. Uh, this is super important to the future of the church with stagnant and declining offerings and budgets, uh, numbers dropping. Even right now, as much as 50% of churches, it's reported, may or may not make it through this pandemic. We have got to learn to work smart economically with the future. And by the way, it's about just economics. The loss, the disenfranchised, when they see churches leveraging their assets uh, to create jobs, to help to reduce crime in the community, repurpose abandoned property, generate tax revenue, that 
is the witness that gets the attention of those who are lost and disenfranchised. Uh, just like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, we can talk all day. We can preach the gospel all day. But when you take over an abandoned property and redeem it, you don't have to preach redemption. You just demonstrate it to 36,000 people living in your zip code, for instance. So all of that's to say is this other leg, the church economics, we now are coaching in that space of course speaking, but we developed a, a service in partnership with Ocean in Cincinnati, a faith-based accelerator called uh, Church Economics and Entrepreneurship. It's a four-month mini MBA for pastors that literally take you and a team of three from your church. We hold you by the hand over four months, uh, and you come out the other end not guessing at what you might do to leverage your assets, but you know, walk you through creating the business plan, doing field research, et cetera. Our partners of business folks up at Ocean are bringing that together. So in a sense, you might read my book. You might hear me speak on this and say, wow, what could we do? Four months of intense training. It's a mini MBA. You know, Rachel, in seminary, I didn't have one hour of one class of one course in one semester in an entire three-year degree and then my doctorate that talked about economics or business. Amen. And most of us have not had it, right? So yep. we've got to get that. So we developed that program. That can be found at ceeprograms.com. You can read about it and what people are doing in different conferences. And we launched two Methodist conferences going through that four-month program uh, they begin in January. So conferences are forming five to seven church cohorts that we then walk them through on this four-month program. Again, you can get more information at ceeprograms.com. And by the way, I'll just mention a fifth dimension now of our work. Literally, it'll be up, I would say, in the next seven to 10 days. But uh, one of our team members, Dr. Rod Cooper, he's a clinical psychologist, a theologian. He's been at Gordon-Conwell for years. Uh, he is now joining our team. It does already CQ assessment and training for churches, but we're opening up a mental health counseling for pastors. Um, wow. And particularly so much, uh, there is mental health, the strain, the fatigue of COVID and all that. Uh, yes. But there's so much around racial divisions and tensions and navigating um, that we are going to literally open a virtual conference uh, counseling center with Dr. Rod Cooper heading that division for pastors who need people to talk to, pastors of color particularly, how to navigate this uh, and, and to deal with the emotions and the tensions around that. That's adding to the mental health and fatigue of pastors. I read a stat the other day. I don't know that this is true, but it said that roughly 70% of pastors in this moment are thinking of getting out of the business, so to speak, of leaving the ministry. And we want to help uh, make a difference in that stat. So our fifth dimension should be open by, certainly by January of 2021, where we'll have uh, mental health counseling and fatigue counseling, if you will, particularly centering around the tensions of race, class, and culture, how that impacts the psyche of a person, how we can navigate that conflict resolution, implicit bias training, all of that will be under our counseling uh, division. Wow, that's amazing. And it's so desperately needed. And, and it kind of leads me, I guess, to one final question a lot of church plants and church planters I know initially in those first few years, they're really nimble. They're very adaptive. They're able to respond, but the larger they grow, the more institutional, at least in Methodism, they can become, you know, they charter, they have all these committees. And then it's hard for people to take risks, to adapt, to respond to the environment. How have you as the leader of both the, the church here and the network been able to maintain that flexibility, that adaptability that lets you add this whole fifth element that is so desperately needed and do it in a timely manner? How have you accomplished you know, that, that? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, my colleague, Harry Lee, and I were talking the other day about how from the 
beginning, when you're working in the urban center, uh, when you're working with the homeless and the undocumented, as well as people of means and black, white, Asian, Hispanic, et cetera, as we have been now for 20 years, uh, what's baked into the DNA of our ministry is adaptive uh, change. Like that wasn't terms, if you will, that we just had to figure out in the last nine months, right? We have always had to be adaptive. We've always had to be agile and essentially keep our ear to the ground and then move towards it, right? If you see it, move towards it. Uh, because of course you can sit around and try to button down the hatches, nail it, get every dot and T crossed on, on things, but you miss the moment, right? And then, like you said, the longer you, you hesitate, the less likely it is you're to jump. So I would suggest pastors, it, it's, not, it's not a technique to be adaptive. It's got to be part of the culture of your church. Uh, and, and we had baked that in, of course, in our area. But we literally were talking to pastors this very week about developing a culture of adaptive agility, a disruption in the business world. The book I wrote in 2017 talks about this, that it's, it's holistic systemic change, and we have to move towards it. We have to be able to see what's not just what's in front of us, but what that doesn't measured risk. Uh, and, and you cannot be afraid to fail. You have to keep your ear to the ground and you have to move quickly when the spirit of God, uh, when the stars align, if you will, and you see a need, you have, there's an opportunity and you hear the voice of God, you've got to move, you know, uh, to it in a, in a very timely, quick way. And you'll learn along the way. It's the old phrase, build the car as you drive it right? Because by the time you build the car and it's ready to drive, people have bought other cars. They don't need your car anymore. You've got to move and lead uh, by getting out there, making mistakes. Sure. But learning, adapting, that's how you grow. Uh, you know, years and years ago now, uh, I used to, uh, when I lived in Oregon, I was a youth pastor. I'd take kids up this gorge and we would jump off cliffs into uh, a waterfall. And there were three levels, like 10 feet, 25 feet, and 50 feet of this jump. In fact, when I met my wife, I took her up there to impress her jumping off the 50 foot ledge. Right. <laughs> but I can't tell you how many times we would climb to the other side of the water. So there's a waterfall, there's a pool, if you will. And we, we would, you know, people that were there, they'd come to jump, they'd uh, test themselves. So, you know, jumping off 10 feet, not a big deal, 25, a little bit more. But when you got up to 50 feet and you look over that ledge and, and you can hardly see the water, and there's a few people splashing down there to take that leap took a lot. And what I realized a long time ago, and I saw this over and over again, if you went to the top of that cliff and you saw, you know, you're ready to go, but you hesitate, the longer you wait and hesitate, the less likely it is you are to jump. I yeah. learned that as a youth pastor, like 25, 30 years ago or whatever it's been. And, and that's part of this, this, this culture. When you see the need and you, you see a way, right, for you to engage, you have to jump. And you, you hear the voice of God, jump, just get out there. The worst thing that's going to happen, okay, it didn't work. You know, when we launch this counseling ministry, let's say we do it. And, and the worst thing that's going to happen is two years are going to go by and nobody ever calls. Hey, well, in a park, that's great because maybe people are doing just fine, right? But from a, a ministry side, if nobody calls us, it's the worst thing that would happen. So why not establish, get it ready, get it on, not just on paper, but set it up and be there when someone calls that. That would be the work. It just didn't work. Okay. We'll go on to something else, if you will. But so many pastors are afraid, right? Fear is the opposite of faith. And again, building that culture of adaptability, of disruption, that, that culture's got to be there. And you get that from, in a sense, keeping your ear to the ground. What are the needs of the people in the community? What do you see, right? What capacity might you have? Again, 
people, money, buildings to, to move in that regard? And is the voice of God speaking to you? And when those three things, the stars align, if you will, jump. Don't hesitate. The longer you hesitate, the less likely it is you are to jump and get involved. Mm, that's amazing. It's a great word. And I feel like you took me to church. And so anyone out there <laughs> hearing the voice of God and not sure if they should jump, this is the time, especially as so much of the future is unknown. And it's like a new reformation for the church. Why not? Even if you fail, like you said, it's just failing forward. Um, you learn, you grow, and you're obedient at the end of the day. That's what matters. So, um, so thank you so much for your time, for sharing about you know your story, and then all of the resources and ways that God has called you to equip others. I'm just so grateful for you and for all that you're doing, and any Methodist or any denomination, anybody out there who could benefit from all that um, Mark and his organizations have to offer, please reach out to him. They can just go to your website, right, as kind of that main um, billboard, I guess, of next steps and who to contact. Is that the, the best way to go, Mark, for those who want to know more? Yeah, Rachel, mosaics.info, M-O-S-A-I-X.info. And uh, you can read more, learn the things we've been talking about, take your time to look through it. And it's real simple. Really, the first step is just make an appointment with me. I'm super accessible, e easy. You just click a button. It goes to my colleague, Allison. She sets up a time with you. We talk for 30, 45 minutes. I kind of assess your situation, your context, and then recommend from the various products and services we offer to help churches become healthy, multi-ethnic, economically diverse, culturally intelligent, uh, financially sustainable, socially just from all that array of products and services. I'll listen to you and then I'll craft based on what I know, listening to in your context, I'll say, here's a step or two in the right direction. I will say this, uh, Rachel, the primary thing that majority culture churches need right now if I, if I was king for a day and I could wave a magic wand and everybody did what I believe they need to do, every single church in America, and particularly majority culture uh, churches, need to do CQ assessment and training. They've got to start with the MRI. Uh, you cannot self-diagnose in this age of racial unrest and tension and all things uh, painfully polarizing and cynical. We've got to understand where we are in the moment in terms of our cultural engagement and competence before we can move forward with intelligence and grow that muscle, if you will. So yes, economics, that's a big one as well. Uh, but I, you know, if I was saying start knowing what I know, I'd start with CQ and let things work out there. But yes, go to mosaics.info and let us help you. You can do it. We can help. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for your time today. Thanks to everybody who's listening in and um, join us next week for our next episode of Field Preachers. Field Preachers podcast has been a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Visit all our podcasts at podcasts.umcdiscipleship.org.